0: Well, I now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning. As we return now, after I've been away a couple of Lord's days from the pulpit, um, we return to our study of First Corinthians. And we pick up where we left off here in First Corinthians 13. I'll read this morning verses 4 through 7. So this is God's holy word, as He inspired the apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth, and so being inspired and superintended by the Holy Spirit in this writing uh, it is without error as God gave it to Paul and as Paul recorded it so this is the word of the living God as we read again First Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 love suffers long and is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself is not puffed up Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray for the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord our God, we do... Pray that you would now open our hearts. That as we've heard your word read, and as we'll hear it repeated, as we hear it exposited, we pray that not only would the preaching of it be faithful, but the hearing of it would be faithful. That we would take to heart the things that you have taught. And so, to that end, we pray, O oh Lord, that the words of my mouth now, and the words of all, or the, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time I was here to preach for you, and before a couple of weeks of vacation there, last time we we examined the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 and considered the importance of love. Uh, You would be hard-pressed to find any professing Christian who would say that love is unimportant. Indeed, it would be hard to find someone among the most depraved heathens or the most hardened atheists who would deny the importance of love. Most everybody thinks that love is really important. Where the challenge to sound doctrine comes is in the way that many would define what love actually is. Every Christian knows that we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, We know that Christ commanded his disciples to have a special love for one another, and he said that that's how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So, of course, all professing Christians would say love is important, though the the liberal so-called Christian would agree with those statements even while denying the true gospel. But he would define love quite differently than the believer should. That's to say, as the Bible defines love. So today we're going to see the meaning of love by breaking down how the Apostle Paul defines it in this passage, in these verses that we just read. Love, biblical love, is defined by characteristics that it produces. So you'll notice, by the way, that love isn't just a feeling that might accidentally well up from within you, right? That Those butterflies that you get when you see that special someone you might think of marrying or something like that. It's not just that. There is emotion involved with it. But biblical love is more of a choice and an action, It's an active love and it produces certain characteristics and you'll see these characteristics. And so this love is defined, biblical love, is defined by the characteristics it produces in the person who's practicing it. Uh, We'll just take these things in the order they're presented, sort of Bible study style this week. Now remember the context though. The Corinthian church has been divided into various factions. Apparently with divisions mainly over uh, who was a person's preferred teacher? And uh, uh, Pastor Finley reminded us of this last week when he was here. I don't see I didn't tell him I was preaching in First Corinthians. He just happened, in God's providence, to go back to the beginning of the book and and uh, remind us of what was going on with the division in the Corinthian church at that time. People were preferring some Paul as their preferred teacher to associate with. Uh, There's Apollos, who ministered in Corinth for some time. There were lots of people we know in Corinth who had fled from persecution in Rome, uh, particularly Jewish Christians, because it was the Jews who were being persecuted in Rome at that point, by uh, the Emperor Claudius. And they may have had a particular affiliation with Peter, or Cephas, as he's called in this letter. But this divisive spirit affected how they dealt with matters related to liberty of conscience we've seen in this letter. It it even damaged the witness of the Lord's Supper. We see that in chapter 11. And in this section of the letter we see that that this divisive spirit went hand in glove with the way that some favored certain spiritual gifts over others. The people that I like have this gift. In the midst of his discussion of spiritual gifts, Paul tells the Corinthians that he's going to show them a more excellent way, and then we see in chapter 13 that that way is the way of love. Paul's concerned with the Corinthians' love for one another. And he tells them to love one another, emphasizing the importance of love, as we saw last time, over spiritual gifts, over charitable acts, over outward acts of self sacrifice. And now he tells the Corinthian brethren uh, how to go about loving one another. It's very easy to tell somebody, love your neighbor, love your fellow Christian. Well, how do you do that? As we see again, love is not just a feeling, it's an action. We saw last time that Christian love is to be self-sacrificial. That's the general definition of this word in Greek, agape, Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So it's it's a self-giving, a self-sacrificing love. And Paul elaborates here then on what that self-giving love looks like. He writes, love suffers long. That's literally what the Greek verb means, as we have it here in the New King James Version in our pul- our pew Bibles. It's makrothume. is the, the Greek word. It's, it's the, the verb version of the noun that literally means long-suffering, or you could translate it also as big or great-suffering. It's often translated in our Bibles as patience, because it means to put up with something that you find unpleasant for a long time. There's a, a very minor example of that that came to my mind last night was that, you know what, I'm somebody who likes having an orderly house. And I like my, uh, particularly my bookcases. I'm a book collector. I like to have everything looking orderly on my bookshelves. Uh, but having two two-year-olds in the house means that the house isn't going to look orderly very often. And we put a lot of things that we want to be out of their reach on those bookshelves in front of the books. and So they look kind of cluttered. But I can be long-suffering, can't I? I can be patient with that. Why? Because I love them. And my love for them is more important, so the way I treat them is more important to me than having an orderly house. So this word, long-suffering, literally means that to suffer long can be translated as being patient uh, you put up with something that you may not prefer for a long time. Uh, this is a part of the fruit of the Spirit that's named in Galatians 5, and 23. Patience, long-suffering is listed there. Uh, God has been supremely patient with mankind, with our folly and sin. Uh, he exercises patience for the sake of his elect, we find in Scripture. In 2 Peter 3.9, we read, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. People are saying, well, where's his judgment coming? And uh, when are all these promises going to be fulfilled? It seems like everything's continued just as it has always been. And uh, Peter says, well, uh, they know that they're forgetting that God is patient. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, we should note there that in context, uh, the all there refers to all of you, the us there is us, uh, to whom Peter wrote the letter. And we see at the beginning of Second Peter that he wrote that letter to the same people he wrote 1 Peter to, and we look at 1 Peter, and we see that he wrote it in 1 Peter 1-2, uh, to the elect. That God is patient with mankind for the sake of his elect. He's patient with mankind for the sake of the people whom he is saving out of the world. Therefore, his people should reflect that kind of patience. God is supremely patient with mankind in general. Think about all of your sins and all of your stumbling in your life. Think of how patient God has been with that as he's brought you along and sanctified you over time. Uh, Lord willing, this evening we're going to be talking a little bit about sanctification, progressive sanctification, that, that God works in the hearts of his people and makes them more like Christ over time. And how patient has he had to be with me? Well, therefore, if he's been that patient with me, I should reflect that patience in my treatment of others, and so should you, especially your fellow believers. Christian love manifests in putting up with a great deal from one another. Yes, we need to practice church discipline. This isn't saying that that church discipline shouldn't be happening. Paul wouldn't be contradicting exactly what he just talked about a couple chapters ago, right? Uh, Yes, we need to practice church discipline in regard to ongoing sin that is not being repented of. That for the sake of the sinning brother, this is actually... Church discipline is, is part of loving your neighbor, right? For the sake of the sitting brother or sister, we discipline them as much as we practice discipline for everyone else's sake. But as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. As our testimony teaches, we need not use church discipline for every little sin wherein we might be legitimately grieved with our neighbor or to be patient with our brothers and sisters put up with a lot from them we all probably put up with a lot I know that if you put up with a lot from me it's a, uh, that's a good reflection of God's patience and I can certainly put up with a lot from others because I know they must put up with a lot from me <laughs> Well, next, Paul says love is kind. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, in Matthew 11.30, the word there for easy is the adjective form of this verb that Paul uses right here. Uh, I'm not going to give you all the Greek words. I might give you some of them Very uh, right here. This one is too uh, tutai. Is I added a syllable there that doesn't crase to a tie. Uh, so we can read this as love goes easy on others. As John MacArthur's written, For the Corinthians, kindness meant giving up their selfish, jealous, spiteful, and proud attitudes and adopting the spirit of loving-kindness. Among other things, it would allow their spiritual gifts to be truly and effectively ministered in the spirit rather than superficially and unproductively counterfeited in the flesh. Loving kindness, that's another way of translating uh, this word, kind. It's uh, how the Hebrew word chesed throughout the Old Testament is usually translated. Loving kindness, it can also be translated into the greek as agape the very word that we're defining here the word for love that's being defined here Hesed like can be translated also as steadfast love or even as grace so to exercise christian love is to show grace to show steadfast love to our neighbor and especially to one another to be kind you know if patience is kind of like mercy you know Not bringing the consequences of another's sin upon him, just bearing with it. Right? Then kindness is like grace, Uh, giving a good thing that has been not been earned, rather. So, So, giving an unearned gift, giving a good thing to someone that maybe they don't deserve. Be kind. Next, love does not envy. Paul says, literally, love not is envious or jealous. Uh, Christians practicing biblical love do not begrudge others the good things they have. We don't envy others. So much of modern politics is rooted in begrudging other people what they have, right? Politicians garner votes for themselves by promising, uh, I'm not going to tax you, I'll tax those people over there and let you have the benefits of it. The whole Marxist economic and social theory is founded on begrudging others what they have. Christian love does not do that. Love does not parade itself, also Paul says. That's a a rather literal translation of the Greek term that's used here. To parade or to vaunt oneself. Vaunt's not a verb we use very often in English these days. Uh, It means to, to put yourself forward as better than others. Hey everybody, look at how great I am. It's often translated as boast. Christians living out biblical love do not put themselves forward as better than others. That doesn't mean that you're falsely modest. If you're good at something, you can let people see you're good at it. That's fine. Especially when it's needed. If somebody is good at plumbing, I would much rather them say so when we have a leak here at the church or something and say, hey, maybe I can help with that and not leave me to mess everything up. Right? really wouldn't be me doing it. Thankfully, we have some faithful deacons who are good. I know one of them, at least, is very good at plumbing from my experience. Uh, But Christians living out biblical love don't put themselves forward as better, especially morally speaking, than others. They're instead meek and humble and that goes hand in hand with the next quality love is not puffed up the image is like that you know, a, a rooster strutting through the farmyard right, with his chest out or a man walking around with his chest sticking out sort of calling attention to himself again. Saying, look at how great I am everybody I'm so much better than you are you might think of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who Jesus said prayed to himself and and as we see the parable going on, he's speaking out loud. So when Jesus says he's praying to himself, he's, he's not saying he's praying quietly. He's, he's saying he's really addressing himself and not God. And he says, God, I thank you that you've made me so wonderful. <laughs> that I'm, I'm such a great guy and not like that sinner over there. That's the kind of arrogance that's being spoken of here. There's been in recent years an overreaction to the sort of toxicity of radical feminism uh, that has left some men adopting an exaggerated form of of qualities that that uh, feminists have criticized. The radical feminist has unjustly lumped all traditionally masculine traits into this pile of what they call toxic masculinity. So if you're just being a regular man, you're toxic, right? Uh, and few of those behaviors are actually negative. But in rejecting the feminist worldview, there are some men who uh, have embraced not only the sort of traditional male traits that are being criticized uh, and have been, un- have been wrongly labeled as, as toxic, but uh, they've embraced some characteristics that really are negative, and you can find people like this for popular internet figures who are uh, putting forth things that, that men should reject as not being great masculine traits. They've replaced humble but confident action with arrogance and domineering attitudes. Christ is the example of true masculinity. He was forceful when necessary. He didn't shrink from a fight when he needed to fight. He was always resolute. But he was also gentle. He was protecting of those who needed protection. He was meek. He was always humble. Exercising Christian love means not being puffed up, not being arrogant. Romans 12.3 For I say to you, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So think accurately of yourself. Not, you don't have to think too lowly of yourself, but don't think too highly of yourself. Next, love does not behave rudely. The Greek verb here means behaves indecently or unbecomingly. Uh, this has, has to do with the, the sort of having bad manners in general. In a conduct unbecoming of a Christian. This isn't talking about having you know, eating your salad with the wrong fork or something like that at, at the dinner table. Uh, but remember how in chapter eleven some were, were uh, eating their fill before others had even had a chance to eat, and they didn't leave anything for them. Uh, that would be an example of what Paul says here is what love does not do. It's not inconsiderate. right? More generally, the word can refer to behavior unfitting for a Christian in general. Uh, in the military, you might hear of someone being accused of conduct unbecoming an officer. Right? And this would be conduct unbecoming of a Christian. That, that which is not fitting, which is unlovely for a Christian to do, it especially means that Christians must have exercise consideration for one another. Love does not seek its own, Paul also says. Literally, not seeks things of itself. Uh, some translate this as does not insist on its own way, which is at least one aspect of what's being said here, but uh, to put it simply, Paul is saying love is not selfish. If you're exercising love, you're not going to be selfish. The church father John Chrysostom said, love seeks the good of others. next, love is not provoked that's a pretty straightforward translation of the verb here it's uh, paroxunatai uh, we have an English word that actually comes from that it's not one that many of us use in our daily conversation but it's the word paroxysm you ever hear of somebody being in a paroxysm or having a paroxysm uh, paroxysm is a sudden, uncontrolled, emotional outburst. Maybe you're just so angry, you're absolutely livid and uncontrolled, right? You feel like smoke's coming out of your ears, and your face is hot, and and you just feel like you're going to explode, and you let it explode. That would be a paroxysm. You just unleash all of your anger on somebody in an uncontrolled way. Now, Christians exercising love properly don't do that. Righteous anger is appropriate. It's not to say that all anger is bad, but not uncontrolled outbursts of emotion. And it doesn't have to be anger, but uh, any emotional outburst that's uncontrolled, that has no self-control, that's, that's what this, this word means. Love is not provoked. Love is not out of control. Right? Next, love thinks no evil. You know, the, it's a phrase in the in the Greek, "o logizetai tachakan." Uh, the the verb translated there "logizetai" uh, is thinks. There it can also be keeps account. You might notice there's a, the same root as our word logic in there. That's probably a better translation. Love keeps no account. A loving Christian may still think evil. So lo- love thinks no evil is is maybe. Uh, too loose of a translation in the sense that uh, we still think evil of Satan, right? Because that's accurate, right? We should think evil of false teachers, right? We should think that's false teaching, right? It's not saying that you never have a bad thought about anyone or anything, right? Uh, That you think something is bad. We have to be able to be discerning or we wouldn't be practicing good Christianity. But... When exercising love properly, we do not keep a record in the back of our minds of all of the things that others have done to offend us. You know when you're having an argument with a loved one, maybe your husband or wife or a sibling, a brother or sister, right? And you're tempted to start listing, you know all the ways you've offended me in the past, you do this, you do this, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. (laughs) that's what Paul says here love doesn't do that would be to do what Paul tells us not to do here Christians should not keep a list of past wrongs uh, when someone has repented of a sin in general we ought not to count it toward that person any longer uh, if the sin is repeated then we might say okay you uh, you haven't totally forgotten it. You can say, well, it looks like you're returning to that sin that you said you repented of before. And so in cases of church discipline, you might start to, uh, escalating the type of discipline that was used. If you rebuked somebody, then you might move on to something else. Uh, but So it's not saying that you totally forget, but we're just generally not to keep a record of past wrongs. Now, God doesn't do that. He doesn't still hold your forgiven sins against you. We must not hold them against each other. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, also Paul says. This is actually the answer to that sadly oft-asked question. I know I've been in the pastorate for a couple months, it'll be 20 years now. And in those years I've been asked several times, uh, is it okay for a Christian to attend a so called gay wedding. You know, my niece is getting married to another girl. Uh, should I go? Well, God calls such behavior evil, sinful, wrong, iniquitous, abominable. Is it loving to rejoice in things that people do that's bringing God's wrath upon them? Not at all. It's an occasion for sadness, not celebration. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, Paul says. We don't rejoice in things that displease God and that that bring God's wrath upon people. But, the opposite, Paul says, love does rejoice in the truth. That's speaking of objective truth. Particularly truth revealed by God. The opposite of iniquity sin and the guilt it brings. Uh, Christians practicing love rejoice in God's truth. They especially rejoice in the gospel. They rejoice in God's word. They love to learn it themselves. They love to see others learn it. We rejoice in anything that lawfully gets God's word to people. To use my previous example, love warns those Who would flout God's laws concerning marriage and sexuality rather than rejoicing in the truth that is, or rejoicing in the fact that the truth is being rejected? Love rejoices in the truth and not in falsehood. Next, love bears all things. This is related to the exercise of patience, enduring all manner of things for the sake of others. Literally, it's all things covers quietly. In particular, that involves putting up with mistreatment from others. Remember in Matthew 5.44, Jesus instructs us to love even our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us, right? Think of Jesus on the cross asking for the forgiveness of the people who were crucifying him. Love covers all things quietly. Love bears all things Love believes all things. Uh, this is not talking about an empty credulity, right? Where uh, you believe anything you hear. That's not, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Or we could even translate the all here as all manner of. Uh, the, the love believes all manner of things, but again, it's not this sort of vain credulity where you, you just, uh, whatever I hear, if somebody says it, it must be true, right? No. Paul tells us in Galatians 1 for example to reject those who were teaching a false gospel, so we we don't believe a false gospel when it's being preached to us, we ought not. Rather this involves believing all things God tells us number 1 in his word and having a charitable spirit toward others. Now, don't be cynical. Don't assume that others are lying to you or trying to defraud you unless you have other evidence of that. So yeah, of course don't believe the telemarketer who calls you and and asks for your personal information. <coughs> uh, every day I I I don't know how many emails I delete day by day that are clearly just somebody fraudulently trying to get my my information uh, either that or I'm missing out on billions of dollars I could have in my bank account by now because all these <laughs> offers yeah you're you're a Four million dollar settlements ready, just give us your bank information, we'll transfer it in. So practice discernment, don't give out your personal information like that, but don't assume the worst of people, basically is what Paul's saying here. Also love hopes all things. In scripture, hope is is not just a vague wish or a campaign slogan, you know, it's a Politician looking off in the distance. That's hope, right? No, that's uh, in Scripture. Hope is a it's a it's a certain eager expectation of things that you know God is going to bring. So faith is believing God's promise. Hope is looking eagerly forward to the promise being fulfilled. Uh, Christians exercising love have an eagerness for the things that God has promised uh, in regard to our love for each other. That would mean you know, looking forward to your brother or sisters. Next step in sanctification. Rejoicing with that. Rejoicing when it comes. Lastly, uh, love endures all things. Paul says here. The word endure there is, is actually a military term. It means holding fast to a position, no matter what. You know, this is the hill to die on, right? You, you either hold off the enemy on this hill or you die trying, right? That's what this what this word means holding fast to a position Christians exercise love by holding fast of course to Christ and they stand by one another no matter what no matter what the world does to us no matter what it brings do you want to exercise love biblical love real self sacrificial love like Christ then be patient with your brethren be kind to others don't envy the success or the gifts that others have that was probably a big problem in the Corinthian church that people were envying the gifts that some had and Paul's been saying every one of us has gifts are going to be different gifts don't put yourself forward as better than others don't be arrogant don't behave rudely or in other ways that are unbefitting of one who is called by the name of Christ, a Christian. Don't be selfish. Don't be easily provoked to emotional outbursts. Don't keep an account of the wrongs others have committed against you. Don't rejoice in the things that God says are wrong. But do rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the truth, in the word of God, in the advancement of that truth in the sanctification of your brothers and sisters. Put up with mistreatment from the world for Christ's sake. And have a charitable spirit toward others and don't assume the worst of them. Don't be cynical. But eagerly expect God's promises in you and in others to be fulfilled. And hold fast in all these things to Christ and to your fellow Christians. That's how you exercise biblical love. Let's pray. Lord, grant that we may indeed love truly, rightly, and wholeheartedly, not as man defines love, but as you have defined it and as you have commanded. As we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.